Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Solomon Ashoms in Abuja, Nigeria, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we talk about the 2016 Women's Africa Cup of Nations in Cameroon with the tournament at the halfway stage. We speak to the coach of Kenya at the competition for the first time and he tells us about the development of the game there. Now we have been always having games for the ladies in terms of round-robin league matches, but now this year they have an exception of the league, which really gives the players the possibility of playing every weekend. Gambian club Real de Banjul have been celebrating their 50th anniversary. Not many clubs in Africa get that far. So what does it take to give a club lasting stability? It is very, very difficult. Football needs, it's a full-time business. Um, It really needs concentration. It needs a lot of work. And Yaya Toure bounces back in stunning style at Manchester City, surprising many people, including Stuart. Steve, I hold my hand up. I did not expect this to happen. That's coming up later, but we start off with the Africa Women's Cup of Nations in Cameroon, where the most impressive teams so far have been the hosts Cameroon and Nigeria. I still think that those two are going to meet in the final next weekend. Well, Kenya are at the tournament for the first time. Defeats to Ghana and then Mali saw them the first team to be eliminated. But they did well to take the lead in their opening game against Ghana and did score in their defeat to Mali. Well, Planet Sport Football Africa's and Eno Ebai is in Limbe, the host city for Group B. He spoke to Kenya coach David Uma on what scene Kenya make such good progress in women's football. Yeah, I think uh, for us, uh, for sure, being here for the first uh, Women Africa Cup of Nations is a fantastic feeling. We have been taking little steps. And I think you can see the teams that have been consistently at the Africa Cup of Nations. They have been there, for example, uh, like Ghana, say, 11 times. You look at uh, Nigeria, you look at Cameroon, they've been consistently. So it means that there's something that they've been doing right. And I think for us, Kenya being here, it means also with our new federation, immediately new administration, we believe they have done something right and that's why we are here. So I think for us, the evolution of women football is now in terms of equality. We don't say women football now in Kenya, we say football. It's cut a standard because I believe professionalism does not have gender. And for me, I think now we have to continue defining ourselves. And this is possible because you can see immediately we come in the first game being a maiden game, we score a goal against a team that have been there consistently. So it means that we are doing something good. So for us, I want to thank also my federation back at home, the step that they have taken in this way, and also to continue doing things in a better way. And that's what states the game, because now we have been always having games for the ladies in terms of round-robin league matches, but now this year they have an exception of the league, which really gives the players the possibility of playing every weekend. So this is something that we feel that will continue to uplift the standards of the players, and the players themselves have shown here that they have that ability. And for us, we say we have to continue in this way. That's David Uma, Kenya's national women's team coach. And certainly having a national league is a huge factor in building women's football. More on the Africa Women's Cup of Nations on next week's show. 
But now let's take a look at the issue of what makes a football club have long-lasting sustainability. In most African countries, you'll find a few teams that have been around for a very long time and that have a big fan base and a proud history. Then the league will probably have a lot of newer teams that are trying to establish themselves. Here in Zimbabwe, we have Highlanders celebrating their 90th anniversary this year. We have Dynamos, who are 53 years old, and Caps United, who are 43. But the rest of the clubs here are much newer, and we have teams folding pretty much every year. So, what does it take to make a club sustainable in Africa? In the Gambia, Real de Banjul have been celebrating their 50th anniversary with a big tournament that was attended by scouts from Europe. Five Senegalese clubs and one from Mauritania took part, along with the Gambia's top teams. Well, of the clubs that were set up at around the same time as Real de Banjul, only Waladan FC are still going, while the others are no more. Real de Banjul are 12-time champions of the Gambia, and our man in Banjul, Mamadou Ba, spoke to Real de Banjul club president Willie Abraham and asked how challenging it's been for the club over the years. Yes, it has been very difficult when we came into office some 25, 30 years ago. But we have transformed the club from just an ordinary club in Africa into a proper business club where we groom players. Try to develop them and market them in Europe and other parts of the world, and thank God so far we have been very successful with this, and this is what is sustaining the club, is sustaining the running, the expenses and everything that has to do with the club, which is very very good. We are all happy about it that the club is growing, and since we finished even the celebrations that we just had in the Independence Stadium, we got a lot of messages from. Gambians messages from around uh, people around the world congratulating us for the job well done for taking this club to a very very high level in in Gambia. So you are responding to a lot of um, emails and trying to make sure that um, some of the players are transferred. How is it like the day to day affairs of it of running a football club? It is very very difficult. Football needs it's a full time business. Um, it really needs concentration. It needs a lot of work. Especially when you are dealing with some countries where the the transfer window closes in a day or two, and players have to be transferred, players have to be marketed. It's not easy at all. It needs a lot of work. There is a lot of communication involved, paperwork, correspondence, financing. Football is not easy at all. Especially with Real de Banjul, us taking the club to a high level, it's very very difficult. And thank God. We have the appropriate staff who do a great job in the office, both in marketing and, and the management of the club. You know, we are very thankful for that. We don't have any issues or any problems. Sustainability is something which is key in the, um, the business of running a club. Um, how how is it like um, for the for the past um, five decades sustaining the club? It's not easy at all to sustain running the club. It's very very difficult. Because there's a lot of expenses to take care of. Um, we are a big club. We have three categories of players, and we need a lot of finances. And the only finances we have is when we market our players. We have no sponsor. We have nobody to assist us, and it's always a very big challenge. But things have been good for us. We have been able to market our players. We have a lot of scouts that we work with around the world, and they all have a lot of confidence. 
when we call them to come to Gambia to look at our players, they always come. Do you have seen that when we had this reel at 50, we had scouts from all of, all around the world. We had scouts from Russia, from Italy, from Sweden, Holland, uh, Belgium. We had scouts coming from all over, all over around the world to come and witness this very important tournament and also look at players. So um, thank God we have been able to develop the club, go higher every year. And hopefully our next targets are to maybe get our own training facility, which we are working on. And hopefully very soon we should be able to try and get financing for that, which would be also a very great achievement for the club. Well, that's the club president of Gambian team Real de Banjul, Willie Abraham. He was talking to Mamadou Ba. Uh, So, Solomon, that's an interesting model. The club has no sponsor and sustains itself by developing players and selling them to clubs in Europe and elsewhere. So do you think that this is the best way for clubs to sustain themselves in Africa? Well, uh, Steve, I think for a lot of clubs in Africa that don't have sponsors or wealthy individuals behind them, I feel that is uh, the way to go. Uh, because there are a lot of young players that are very talented all across the continent and somebody needs to bring them together, give them good uh, training foundations, you know, through academies and and train them up and then, uh, you know, get them to play for the senior team and get some sort of exposure. Uh, So that's, that's a great model, I think, for where African football is right now. Football in Africa has changed, but we have to be careful also not to throw a young player who is still, uh, premature in his thinking and also in his culture and going into Europe uh, when he's not ready and also not to get into a place where we begin to see young players as uh, some sort of uh, in quote slaves you know that we could get together and uh, we sell them off after two years uh, just with the intention of making money we have to also care about uh, the, the players and I think the model of you know getting young players developing them and selling them up to Europe is a great model. So something that other clubs maybe can learn from Real de Banjul. Now, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was much easier for big clubs to survive on gate takings. But this doesn't really seem to work anymore. Yeah, Steve, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, we had uh, really a big crowds coming to the stadium, like very big crowds. I remember growing up in Nigeria, there's the shooting stars, there's stationary stores, Abiola Babes, uh, there's Rangers International, big crowds, you know, are coming to the stadium. You get 40,000, uh, you know, 30,000 and, and you, you get to get, get taken. So I remember then also football was not really professionally played. Uh, you know, until like the 80s, 90s, that's when, you know, a lot of African nations, you know, uh, embraced professional football. But still, it was uh, just an amateur. People love it. The players love it. So they could play all that for almost next to nothing. Uh, but these days, there's just so many uh, financial demands. Uh, you know, you have a te- big technical team. Uh, you have a coach. You have an assistant coach, too, sometimes. You have a technical advisor. You have a medical team. You have a fitness trainer. Uh, you know, you have a psychologist. Uh, so you can not just totally depend on get taken uh, the game has changed uh, you know and even these days we don't see a lot of uh, big fans going to the football stadium to watch games like we used to back in the 60s 70s and 80s because a lot of them stay glued in their tv set at home uh, or a lot of them actually are more interested in, in in european football in the english premier league we have to look at that then and really say get taken is not going to be enough you know, we have to be able to get sponsors uh, use the club to uh, market their brands or their 
their products and that and also through maybe television uh, television rights we've seen quite a bit of it in South Africa where a lot of that money every month uh, each club gets uh, certain millions of of rand that way is really going to go a long way in really helping them and sustaining them so we have to look at uh, different models to to really say how do we uh, move football has evolved and we have to keep changing that way is going to be better yeah, and the current African club champions, Mamelodi Sundowns of South Africa, and they're financed by billionaire owner Patrice Modsepe. So they don't have too many financial concerns, but uh, many clubs in Africa that are financed by one wealthy person do seem to run into problems. Yes, uh, clubs that are really financed by wealthy individuals, you know, like Mamelodi Sundowns, uh, in the past, I've seen quite a lot of them uh, run into trouble, uh, especially in Nigeria. I remember back in the day, there's a club called uh, Stationery Stores in Lagos. It was run by a business guy, an individual. They did quite well. They dominated the league. But after, you know, about 10 seasons, they disappeared. And there was also another big one called Abiola Babes. The club used to belong to our chief uh, MKO Abiola, who was a big businessman, went into politics, and, and then he died much later. Uh, but, but, you know, the club is no more today. No one is actually even talking talking about trying to resurrect these clubs and the thing is for some of these wealthy individuals they don't just go into uh, football and try to buy a club or own a club because they uh, really love the game for a lot of them it's about trying to use the football club because they know a lot of football fans follow football follow the club they just use it as a way to uh, get into a uh, political office so uh, we in africa where we don't have sponsors ready and waiting to pounds on any opportunity to sponsor a club we really have to think outside of the box well sure well thanks solomon and let's compare this with the situation in europe where it's a completely different scenario for example most african clubs don't even own a stadium well our european football expert stuart weir joins us from the uk Uh, stuart take us through the factors that help top clubs in europe to sustain themselves well, we've talked in this programme previously about the recent incredible deal that the English Premier League has done with domestic television, which is about $4 billion over the next three years. And, you know, that means that just from that alone, each club is going to get a minimum of $100 million a year. And, of course, there's additional payments if you happen to have a game televised and so on. And, I mean, that's domestic television only. Worldwide television brings in more. And, you know, the issue of shirt sponsorship, you know, let's look at that. And there is a vast range. You know, you go down to the clubs at the bottom of the pile, like Middlesbrough and Watford, who appear to be getting about one to one and a half million dollars a year on a shirt sponsorship contract but up at the top Manchester United getting 60 million Chelsea 50 million and of course it's because of the drawing power of those clubs not only in the UK but uh, worldwide and so you know that is a massive amount of money you know gate receipts used to be how clubs survived but that's almost become irrelevant now. So you look at a team like AFC Bournemouth, whose stadium only holds 14,000. And of course, compared to Manchester United's Old Trafford with its 75,000 capacity, Bournemouth are losing out. But because of the TV money, because of the shirt sponsorship, because of the merchandise, it's still quite reasonable for teams towards the bottom of the pyramid 
to survive and survive well. So there is just so much money around. And that is why, you know, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Some players are on contracts of over $200,000 a week and are struggling to get into the first team of their Premier League club. There's just so much money around in Europe. So, you know, sadly, the comparison, Steve, that you're trying to make with Africa um, just don't work at all because the amount of money that the big business of Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, etc., generate in Europe is just off the page compared to the rest of the world. Yes, it's sad indeed, and it's another world really there in Europe. And uh, Stuart, uh, one thing I've noticed, uh, we do see some clubs getting promoted to the English Premier League as relatively small teams, but some do manage to stick around and become well-established. Clubs like Bournemouth and Watford seem to have the potential to do that, and Southampton have become very strong since their return to the Premier League. Uh, So too Swansea, although they are struggling at the moment, and then Manchester City became giants almost overnight and a big reason here is foreign owners taking over well of the 20 premier league clubs there are only five which have an english or british owner and those are burnley middlesbrough stoke city tottenham and west ham united now when you go back to the days when the football club was very much a, a local entity it was the community's club. How have things changed? Because now, you know, we've got Arsenal, Crystal Palace, Liverpool, Manchester United, Sunderland and Swansea in American owners. And you see, now that has some significance. I mean, why on earth did Swansea City appoint Bob Bradley, an American with no experience of the Premier League, as their new manager? Well, perhaps because they have American owners. The battles between the Glazer family and the Manchester United supporters are well documented. But it continues. West Brom are now in Chinese ownership. Hull City, Egyptian. Everton, Iranian. Watford have an Italian owner and an Italian manager and a lot of international players. So again, that's that's been a significant change. The owners of uh, Southampton... The Liebherr family are from Switzerland and Manchester City, of course, have owners from the United Arab Emirates, which is reflected in the name of their ground, the Etihad Stadium. But, you know, two that seem to have worked quite well is Leicester City with Thai owners who have been really very supportive and have linked the club and made them very popular in Thailand. And, of course, the the club celebrated their league championship not just in Leicester, but actually flew out to Thailand to do the same. And equally, you could say that the Russian owners of Bournemouth have put money in and at the same time have kept a very English and very family feel to that club. And, of course, the other Russian owner is Roman Abramovich at Chelsea, who has at times certainly been less popular among supporters and who has a certain predilection for changing his manager very regularly and paying vast sums of compensation to break contracts. So I think there are a lot of issues and probably not necessarily for the best of English football that so many of the clubs are in foreign ownership. 
And, you know, it's not just in the, the top tier, because if you go down to the championship, you've got American, Chinese, Italian, Kuwaiti, Malaysian and Thai owners there as well. And this, of course, all started when clubs were looking for more money and turned themselves into companies listed on the stock exchange, which, of course, means that it's possible for anyone to buy the club. And the kind of link to the local community is very much weakened by that. There have been some advantages in it. More money has come into the game. But at the same time, uh, I think that uh, the way that spectators have been treated, the increase in admission charges, the lack of contact to the local community in some cases uh, has been a fairly negative feature. But I suppose we just have to accept that this is the way of the modern world. Yes, it does look like those foreign owners are there to stay in the English Premier League. Well, very interesting. Thanks very much for that, Stuart. Uh, This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And you can download our app and listen to the show anytime. To download it, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Once you've got the app, you can listen to the show anytime and also access past programmes in our archive. Also, you can listen to the show on our website, that's planetsportfootballafrica.com, and our Twitter handle is at planetsportfa. We're still to come on the show, Yaya Toure back with a bang. But now we turn to Facebook and to WhatsApp. And as we've already mentioned, the 12th edition of the Women's Africa Cup of Nations began last weekend in Cameroon, with eight teams taking part. Nigeria have won nine of the 11 editions of the competition, with Equatorial Guinea winning the other two. So we asked, who do you think will take it this time? Well, let's start in Cameroon with Nsonyi Armstrong. Cameroon will win the Women's Nations Cup, says Nsonyi, first because they are the hosts and second because of their bonuses. Each player will be rewarded handsomely if they win. This shows the determination to motivate these ladies. All the teams are very competitive. That's good for African female football. But my issue is that FIFA should place some regulations on clubs who do not release players on time for competitions, especially the European clubs. Thanks for that, Tansonyi. Uh, we heard from Ebrima Ambabaro from the Gambia, living in Italy. Ebrima agrees. He says, surely I'll put my money on Cameroon to win it on home soil. As for Nigeria, I don't even think they'll make it to the final. Really, I certainly disagree with you, Ebrima, but we'll see as we get to the semi-final stage. Uh, Cherno Jallo in the Gambia says, I think there's a lot to be done to see women's football reach the top level. We have to overcome the stigma and the cultural norms associated with women's football. Nevertheless, I'll put my money on the host Cameroon. With a home crowd, I believe they will win it. Donald in Cameroon says, I think my country will claim the trophy, but it's going to be a tough one from our rivals Nigeria. Also in Cameroon, Silas Ankiambom Gong says, I think Cameroon will win, considering that the ladies are playing at home with home support. Nonetheless, Nigeria are a force to reckon with. Anyway, I think Cameroon and Nigeria will play in the final, says Silas. And I agree completely with you. We'll uh, see if we approve to be right. Uh, Fabrice in Cameroon got in touch for the first time. Great to have you with us, Fabrice. And he says, wow. On paper, Nigeria are the favourites to win, but hosting in our own backyard and on the back of a brilliant performance from the last Women's World Cup in Canada, I want Cameroon to win. 
Over to the Gambia now, and Samba Anas says, I want Cameroon to win it. I watched their opening game against Egypt, and their performance really impressed me. With the crowd, I hope that they will do well, but Nigeria scare me. With that superb performance against Mali, they can spoil the host's hopes of winning the cup. Well, not surprisingly, the response from Nigeria is very patriotic. Barnabas Ande there says, Go for gold, Super Falcons. Niger for life. We are bringing back the title. In Sierra Leone, Ishmael Saidu Kanu agrees. He says, I think Nigeria still has what it takes to take the trophy for the 10th time. Having Asisat Oshuala as their lead striker, Nigeria heading for another trophy, says Ishmael. Cameroon as host can challenge for the title with home advantage, but I believe Nigeria will win this year's competition. Lamine Sane is in the Gambia. He says, I'm rooting for Nigeria to take their 10th title. They have the players who have the winning mentality and there's always a fear factor when they play against other nations. So I say Nigeria will win it again. Mariam in the Gambia says, I believe African female football is underdeveloped, especially here in the Gambia. Nonetheless, Nigeria is undoubtedly going to win. And Albert Kadzombe in Malawi agrees with Mariam. I think Nigeria will win because they always perform when it comes to tournaments, says Albert. And Mohamed Ayakinte in the Gambia says, I'm following the Women's Africa Cup of Nations. I think Nigeria will win due to their experience. And Alfredum Dimba in Malawi and Alimami Fofana in the Gambia both say it's Nigeria. Lamine Bakari Sanyang from the Gambia says Nigeria will take it, as does Jesse Rando in Sierra Leone. And finally, on another topic, Alassana Drame in the Gambia says, I'm so glad to see Yaya Toure back in the Man City squad last Saturday with a stunning performance. What a week and what a performance by Toure. And I absolutely loved it, says Alassana. We've got Stuart's comments on Yaya Toure coming up shortly. But this week on Facebook and on WhatsApp, we're asking who do you think will be the 2016 African Footballer of the Year? The Confederation of African Football has announced the five-man shortlist for the African Player of the Year. They are Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang of Gabon and Borussia Dortmund, Riyad Mahrez of Algeria and Leicester City, Sadio Mane of Senegal and Liverpool, Mohamed Salah of Egypt and Roma in Italy, and Islam Slimani of Algeria and Leicester City. So we're asking, who do you think will win the award? Send us your thoughts on WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two. Seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. We'll go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa. Who do you think will be the CAF African Footballer of the Year? And we'll talk more about this on next week's show. Well, before we go, a quick look at the English Premier League, where, as we've heard, Yaya Toure stole the show as he unexpectedly returned to the Manchester City team and bounced back in style with two goals as his team won 2-1 at Crystal Palace. Remember, Toure had been dropped in August by manager Pep Guardiola, who seems to have now accepted Toure's apology in their standoff. Well, Stuart, a lot of people, including you and me, weren't expecting Toure to ever play again for Man City. Steve, I hold my hand up. I did not expect this to happen. And not only, of course, does Yaya Torre start his first Premier League game of the season, he has an excellent game and is the person who's there to score both goals for Manchester City. And incidentally, Steve, that's the first time he scored two goals in a Premier League game since May 2015. Afterwards, Torre said, it's good to be back. 
Today was a good day for me, and I was particularly pleased to be able to help my team. Now, very uncontroversial comments. Pep Guardiola said, I'm very happy for him. He's a really nice guy. His weight is perfect, and there's never been a question about his fitness. Now, we have one more player to help us towards our targets. Now, that looks to me like a happy ending and very measured comments by both of them. And now I'm beginning to wonder whether Tory will, as I've predicted, leave Manchester City in the transfer window, or will he actually get back in the team regularly and become a key player once again? Well, it's an amazing story. We'll see where it goes. Uh, Toure, hugely impressive in coming back in style and obviously was keeping himself very fit indeed. So kudos to Yaya Toure. And uh, we'll see if he will become a regular in the Manchester City squad. Thanks so much uh, to Stuart. Uh, That's it for this week's show. But uh, on WhatsApp and on Facebook this week, uh, we're asking who do you think will be the African Footballer of the Year after CAF has announced the five-man shortlist. It's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Riyad Mahrez, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah and Islam Slimani. So who do you think will become the CAF African Player of the Year? Send us your views on WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. We'll go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa. From me, Steve Vickers in Zimbabwe, from Solomon Ashams in Nigeria, and Stuart Weir in the UK. Thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production. <laughs>